even if you have a perfect book, you do not have perfect interpreters. And if you make the move and say, but I have the Holy Spirit who is God in me, and that Holy Spirit is the perfect interpreter, that does not mean that you are hearing that Holy Spirit correctly. Do we need apologetics today on In the Shadow of the Cross? to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here with my friends Jim Durkin. Good morning. And Michael Harden. Still here after all these years. Yeah, still chugging along. (laughs) We got to thinking about our early years in Christianity, and one of the things that comes to mind uh, that we were talking about before we turned the mic on is, I remember um, when I was in youth group in particular, we would spend hours talking about how do we answer this question when a critic comes to us? How do we answer this question? Or how do we answer that question? And basically trying to come up with ways to defend the Bible and defend the scriptures. And I was a big fan of Josh McDowell's book, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, There's been YouTube videos on guys coming up with clever answers to tough biblical questions like how can a God of love do this? How can a God of love do that? Or what do you do about um, their there's this verse that says this one thing and this verse over here that contradicts that. So how do you how do you reconcile those together? And and that that was a big um topic in my early years of, of Christianity. And and I'm I'm framing all that just so people understand that if you're not in the academic know that the, the term that's used for that is apologetics. And uh, apologetics is basically, um, well, Michael, you'd be able to defend, uh, define it better than me, but it's basically, if I understand correctly, it's basically like defending the scriptures, um, uh, being able to explain or answer correctly um, the questions that critics may pose to you. And um, one of the things that we were talking about before we turn the mics on is is apologetics necessary in Christianity? So I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. And uh, Michael, what do you think? Is apologetics necessary? Uh, in, uh, in apologetics for Christianity or for the gospel? Uh, for Christianity. <laughs> yes, the gospel needs no defense, as Karl Barth would say. Uh, okay. Christendom, Christianity needs apologetics for one reason and one reason only. It bases salvation on doctrine, right knowledge. And it's thus fundamentally Gnostic. And uh, we might say even um, rationalistic, but but I don't want to poison that word too much because there's very, very, very little about uh, Christianity that orients itself to apologetics as rational. But they're rationalistic in one very specific sense. They're they're Aristotelian in their deductive processes, and they are also very, very heavily influenced by Scottish common sense realism of Bacon and others. And um, so as a result, the fundamentalist has a first principle. And we've talked before uh, in this series about how the Reformed tradition put Scripture right up there at the very front of all but one confession that it ever produced. 
and that tradition, of course, is out of is that out of which evangelicalism will uh, will will come. And why our evangelical and fundamentalist friends are so stuck? They have to go back to that first principle. This is the Bible, the Word of God. These are the books that belong in the canon. The Bible is, and then they'll give their various verses, their Second Timothy three sixteen, Second Peter one twenty one text, you know, on and on. And then what they're going to do on top of all of that? Okay, so now they've declared the Bible's inspired. This this is they're going to make a leap. And that leap is precisely what kills them, what turns them into, in fact, non-Christianity. That leap is a leap that goes from God-inspired Scripture to God is perfect, God wrote the Bible, therefore the Bible is perfect. There's that, there's that Aristotelian deductive logic right there, boom. And once they do that move, and they do it early, and they do it often, and they do it continuously, once they make that move, they land in Gnosticism. And from that point on now, particularly after the 17th century, the church leaders, leadership, the theologians and the pastors, spent a lot of time trying to prove that everything the Bible said was, A, to be interpreted literally, and B, that there were no errors in the text. Now, there's so many other stumbling blocks that they have to deal with, but I think that that dealing with this one here is, is perhaps, if we can slice this carotid artery, We've done away with fundamentalism and basically evangelicalism as we know it forever. And because they're poisonous religious traditions, they're sacrificial. Um, they essentially, what they're doing is they're replacing Jesus as the mediator of the revelation of the Father with the text. And many of those traditions identify Jesus as the Word of God, with the Bible as the Word of God. And those traditions will tell you they're Jesus-focused and Jesus-centered when they're anything but. And so a good chunk of, of their time, as I said, is spent trying to devise ways either archaeologically, uh, deductively, exegetically, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they, they do all kinds of pseudoscience to get you in. I remember I was, a, I was one of these way at the very beginning of my uh, so-called Protestant Christian life when the Baptist got me all born again. You know, I did read Josh McDowell. I did follow the Henry Morris creation people. I was reading and listening to Francis Schaeffer. I mean, I was heavily invested in this at 18 and 19 years old, you know. Right. And with that passion of an 18 or 19-year-old, just reading, 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 constantly listening, you know, to family radio and everybody else. And and so I got caught up in all of that, too. And so I, but I remember, you know, the, the, what I thought at that time was a, a rational approach. What I didn't realize was that the other side uh, had had far more ammo, bigger weapons, and better technology than I did. And, and that's one of the things that ended up busting my world wide open was, was discovering things. For example, I mean, very, very simple, simple thing, right? But uh, did Jesus die on Friday or on Thursday? We have 
to Mark and Luke very clearly stating it's after the Passover, which would have been Thursday, Thursday night, he dies on Friday. But in the Gospel of John, Passover hasn't happened yet, so he dies on Thursday. You know? Now, if you got a God that perfectly inspired a text, you got a problem that God didn't remember. I, I See, I told Mark, and I know Matthew and Luke copied Mark, but what did I tell Mark? Uh, I think I told him, I think I told him Thursday. I'll tell John Thursday. <laughs> Exactly, and that I remember that when you talk about uh, the other side having having ammo, I remember that being one that would trip me up bad, you know. Because as soon as they would point that out, the the contradictions between the gospels, that was like, uh oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh um, One of the things, could you um, clarify? We, we've mentioned it on another podcast, but but I've noticed that um, a lot of Christians. They they really stumble over the term Gnosticism because they've been they've been given a definition of Gnosticism so that it doesn't apply to them. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know? so the modern evangelical would say no, they're not Gnostic because they don't have a, a God Satan dualism. I mean, I mean, functionally, you look at their theology, they do, but they claim that they don't. Um, they would say they're not they're not Gnostic because they believe in an incarnation; the Word becomes flesh. Yeah, I'll give them that much, okay? So what they're trying to do is they're, they're attaching Gnosticism strictly to dualistic structures. And they're saying, look, we don't have these structures, you know, in our theology. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I'm looking at, the, uh, at this on the epistemological level. How are we saved? And while the fundamentalist evangelical will say saved by faith, for them, it's faith in what? Faith in a message that comes from a perfect book. Mm-hmm. So in order to accept the message, I have to accept the perfection of the book. That places them as Gnostics straight away, because from that point on, they have to have rational grounds for defending that view of the book. And so they're saved by reason. Wow. That that's a really good thing to highlight because that's something I was actually pondering this week is how odd that that was presented to me as being the gospel is believe this information. And once mm-hmm. you believe mm-hmm. this information mm-hmm. and you agree with it, and then you say this prayer, now you're quote unquote saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the beginning, it didn't bother me. I thought it was great. You know, Jesus saved me. Woo. You know, but, uh, but it, it, it turns out to be a really stupid thing, doesn't it? It's like, there's a God that's just like all the other gods. Bloodthirsty as all get out. Pissed off, man. And I'll tell you what, but there's a way out. There's a way out, man. Because, you know, sometimes sometimes we, 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 we Big Brother will protect us, but he, he beats up on Big Brother just to do that for us. Don't you feel sorry for Big Brother? Don't you want to accept him in your heart? Exactly. And then, and then I've had um, gone round and round with friends of mine who are evangelical believers who, um, when I've shared with them, no, Jesus is the word, not the Bible. You know, they, they get very defensive about that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's um, it's it's a threat, you know, yeah. and uh, and so they've gone round and round with me on on those issues. I, I duck out. I don't want to continue on when they go on those veins. But but, you know, they they. Um, it's it's a threat because, like you said, if if the Bible is being perfect is what is dependent upon your salvation, then that's 
that becomes you're you're hitting in their in, in their minds you're hitting the very foundation of their of their faith of their salvation so um jim what are your thoughts on this the answer that many times you'll get when when you know jesus is the word not not the book or whatever and and they'll get well well of course he is the book says he is <laughs> so therefore therefore he has to be because the book says he is and it's like well what if the book didn't say that would that somehow make him not the word or not god or whatever and we have a thousand different translations uh i don't know it may be more than a thousand maybe less i don't know for sure but there's so many translations out there and now it seems like anybody who thinks, uh, you know, who has a strong concordance and whatever, thinks they can interpret the Bible because they know the original language, you know. <laughs> and preach so we have all, all these self, uh, in, you know, uh, made, in, uh, you know, translations also coming out. And, and uh, you, just, you just look at this and say, this is just insane. It's 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 all part of the same thing. It's all part of let's make this book easier to understand. Let's defend this book. Let's let's stand by this book. And I don't remember the last time I heard anybody teaching people how to have a living vital relationship with the word of God with Jesus Christ. And it's like, here's how you do it. You get into the book, and the book will teach you, you know. And, and and you know, I mean, we we can be trite on this thing. We, you know, well, Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm going away and it's necessary for me to go away because if I don't go away, the book can't not come, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like... But, but, you know, we, we, we can laugh about it, we can joke about it, and that's fine. But this is a serious thing. you got more people out there arguing for the book and have no understanding of, of a triune God. They have no understanding of who the Father really is. They, they don't understand the Word of God. And they certainly don't understand the Holy Spirit, who is the one who guides us into truth. So I, I think this is a subject that uh, is well worth looking into and, and probably coming back and revisiting from time to time on this podcast. That, but getting to the subject matter itself, uh, the subject of apologetics, all seriousness aside... The first time I heard the term apologetics, uh, I wanted to stay away from it because I didn't think we had to apologize for being a Christian. <laughs> then I came uh. to understand, oh, it means something else. Okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, I but you apologize. <laughs> yeah, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> For nothing. No, I don't make mistakes. This is my eternal salvation. I will not apologize. <laughs> I I read a book. Um, I read a book. Uh, I don't remember who the author was, but he was um, 
explaining all of the, quote, contradictions in the Bible and how they're not contradictions. Like, you know, um, was there one demoniac or was there three demoniacs? You know, it's like, well, uh, you got to understand that there was probably more than three even, but um, one writer is impressed by one, so he's just talking about the one, and the other writer is impressed by three of them, so he's talking about those three, and it's like, and it's like, are you kidding me? And then, and then I remember when I was in Vietnam reading a book called Let Some Man Show Me, and it was another fellow who was trying to explain all the miracles of the Old Testament. So it wasn't really the Red Sea they crossed. It was really the Sea of Reeds. And God showed Moses a path that, um, you know, that you could walk across and, and the stones were placed just just perfectly. But he didn't show the Pharaoh that path. So when the Pharaoh came down and tried to follow him, he was swallowed up and... <laughs> in quicksand or something, something ridiculous like that. And I was just like, even our apologetics is ridiculous. It's like, are you, or our attempts at it, you know, are, are you kidding me? It's like, so I really appreciate where Michael's coming from, that it starts out with God is perfect. God dictated the, you know, to these authors word for word, and therefore the word is perfect. And it's like, well, the word is perfect, but it depends on which word you're talking about. <laughs> if you're talking about Jesus Christ, the word, he's perfect. If you're talking about the Bible, which we call the word, uh, I have a hard time using the P word for that one. <laughs> yeah. Although I appreciate the Bible. I definitely appreciate the Bible. Let's let's be clear on that. Several things you said there, Jim. Um, first of all, you're thinking about the demoniacs, about was there one or was there three. I was thinking, well, I went to the cereal aisle. There was only one box of cereal on the aisle because only one box yeah. of cereal caught my attention. <laughs> Caught your attention, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, and then uh, I, I like how you were talking about how everybody being an expert, because I ran into that. Um, well, I've run into that into a lot, but I ran in, uh, into that in particular just a, a couple weeks ago, where um, I quoted something from a a, a, a scholar. Um, and uh, this person comes back and is totally blasting it, disagreeing with what he said. You know, this, uh, it, the person was um, holding more of an evangelical fundamentalist view. And so he was really um, combating like this guy's just out there, the quote that I shared. And, and I'm like, I, I respond and I go, um, that quote, I list his credentials. He's got like so many PhDs and um, has studied the, uh, the, the church fathers and, you know, all, all this in-depth scriptural study and stuff that, and, and, and so I respond to the guy and I'm like, so uh, what exactly is your background? And, uh, and, and the guy responds, goes, well, credentials don't impress me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and it's and it, it just it stuns you because it's like first of all to even say impress that means you don't even understand the point of 
studying and degrees anyway because it's not I'm trying to impress you. It's I'm trying to learn something so I actually have a grasp on it. And and to to think it's about impressing that just that that just blows my mind. It, anyway, the the other thing I love Jim, you said something. Lauren, you said, Lauren let me jump in here for a yeah. second on that. Um, sure. I don't know about the two of you, but I do know I was actually trained that uh, or or taught or whatever in my earlier years in Christianity that these so-called theologians who have letters behind their name, you know, have studied away the inerrancy of the word and they've studied away the the presence of the holy spirit and you know and and on and on and on and on and therefore stay away from such people all they'll do is confuse you so I have that's never... the reason why oh really I've never heard oh that. Well, I've yeah, but that. that's because you're that's I've because you're it. in academia, so my, of course my, you're not going to hear it. But my jaw, the rest of us out here, the rest of us out here. Yep, I, I have yeah. absolutely heard that more than once, and yeah. um, and and that was even the thing where this guy who I was talking to um, was where he was coming from, from that same mm-hmm. mentality of that of, of that. Exactly. Hey, credentials don't aren't. It's not about studying is not about um credentials they're they're just a bunch of know nothings you know basically and you know i've really got it because i've got my bible and my strongest concordance and the holy spirit you know well and and they're out to they're out to prove all this stuff is wrong that's what they're out to prove and it's like really yeah anyhow Go go ahead with your next thought. I just want oh, to put oh, yeah. that, that thought in. No, there. that that was. It's. I think that's important to be brought uh, to bring up um, because I remember people asking questions. You know, when we talk about more ammo on the other side. I remember one person saying, "Okay, so all the animals were on Noah's Ark." You know, we get into apologetics, and someone goes, "So then, how did the platypus get to Australia?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was actually a really good question. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, they waited for uh, somebody to be taking a boat uh, somewhere, I guess. Um, but but the other thing you brought up, Jim, that was really good was you said if the book didn't say that that Jesus is Lord, would he still be Lord? Mm-hmm. That was really a good statement because it's like, is is the book what makes him Lord or? Is Jesus Lord just because He's Lord? So it 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 really it really makes you ponder that if there never was a Bible, you know, is He still Lord? So for the first three hundred years, anyhow, we didn't have a Bible. The church didn't exactly. have a Bible. They had they had letters. They had certain writings and um, a different one of the. Uh, church fathers quoted from some would quote from these letters some would quote from these over here it's like um and michael said something one time that uh i don't remember if you said it on a podcast or just our our conversations but the first time he said it i thought heresy heresy (laughs) 
tongue-in-cheek, but he said, uh, uh, you know, the worst thing that happened was to um, print the Bible in the language of the people and give it out to the people. And I've thought about that many times, and I, and I think it's, it's okay to repeat that uh, here with this disclaimer. It, it, it has turned into, I don't know about the worst thing that's ever happened, but it's turned into not a good thing, not a healthy thing, that there are so many translations in the language of the people, if you will. It's so easy to get a hold of a Bible um, with no instruction at all about how to approach that book. And uh, it, in fact, I, let me rephrase that. There is instruction on how to approach that book, but the instruction's wrong. It, it, it elevates that book to a place that never should have been elevated in the first place, and a place that the church fathers never elevated it to. So I, I, I think, again, I think this subject matter is very important. Uh, that you know, and I and I do know that uh, many of our evangelical friends uh, listening are are uh, probably choking right about now. <laughs> it's like, uh, do I want to keep listening to these guys? But any, anyhow, Michael, you've got a well, thought here, there. There's what here the there's only really a, a couple things that have to be recognized by any evangelical or fundamentalist, and that's this. If they're saved by, by correct knowledge, by right doctrine, how do they know they have right doctrine? I mean, it, there's, there are, I, and this is, I, you know, it's hard for people to imagine reading ten to 12,000 books in their lifetime, you know. And I know I've done that, easy. There are over 100,000 books on Mother Mary alone in Catholicism. Wow. There are simply millions and millions of books that have been written. There are tens, twenties, hundreds of millions of journal articles and essays that have been written. Okay. I used to joke, and it's, I mean, I still collect them, but just about any verse in the New Testament has a PhD written around it 300 pages, you know, it's 170 to 300 pages, you know. Um, and, and so the amount of knowledge out there. Is, is like enormously, incredibly vast. Who, who, in their right minds, would ever want to say, I've found the perfect knowledge? Again, even if you have a perfect book, you do not have perfect interpreters. And if you make the move and say, but I have the Holy Spirit who is God in me, and that Holy Spirit is the perfect interpreter, that does not mean that you are hearing that Holy Spirit correctly. Correct. So there's too many breaks in the chain there for anything to work. Now, what we need to do is, first of all, is when we look at, when I look at Scripture, again, I've told you this before, I look at it from both within the church and outside the church, Okay. When I look at it from outside the church, when I look at it from within the church, basically I just see um, a massive misinterpretation because I don't see Jesus being exemplified in the lives of these congregations. I don't, you know, I mean, some of them, some of them, but but not the vast majority. 
And, um, but when I look at it from without, just as a book amongst books, for example, I cannot deny the incredible influence it's had on human history ever since the Reformation, and particularly since the Reformation. Very powerful. In fact, without, without, without Scripture, you actually don't have modern science because it's Scripture that creates what uh, Sandy Goodhart, the Jewish scholar, calls the law of anti-idolatry, which says the creator is not the creation that allows us to come down the road and go, if the Creator's not the creation, when we study the creation, we're not studying divinity, so we have to have a different way to approach it thus much. Wow. Yeah. And what wonderful books written on this, uh, and the change that takes place particularly in the 13th and 14th centuries. The, the little post-Renaissance, pre-Reformation period, and then after the Reformation, you move into the Enlightenment. It's this movement from Renaissance to Enlightenment is is one big move into modernity, but it goes through those phases. And then we're in modernity for about 200 years now, 220 years, 230, 40 years, whatever it is. And that's at an end. Modernity's in at an end. So we're actually entering in another phase of history now where there's going to be all manner of upset uh, technologically, socially, financially, politically, uh, theologically, you name it. it. Things are changing. And when we get out on the other side of this, you know, 50 years from now, people will be writing books about that shift. And part of my hope is, for the church at least, that shift is a coming back to, we don't, we, we come to the Bible as the witness as, as the, the ap prophetic and apostolic testimony. They gave it their best shot, and in their best shot, there is an incredible, de remarkable degree of faithfulness, particularly as it bears witness to the love of the Father from the beginning to the end. And we can learn to distinguish. We can do what the Jews did. We can, Jesus did, and Paul did. We can distinguish we can allow the Word of God to separate asunder truth from falsehood, idolatry from the living God, where we can look at a text, and just because the text says God said doesn't mean God said it, we're not denigrating the Bible. Yeah. We're yeah. recognizing that the, the interpretive grid, the matrix we've been given in the gospel, in Jesus, this matrix of absolute grace and love with no shadow of turning. That's the revelation of the Father, and that allows us to distinguish a text like that from the Father, and thus we're doing the Father justice, and we're also doing the text justice. And we might say, well, why are texts like that even in the Bible? Why didn't God just come down and reveal himself? Because we humans created the theological model of the two-faced God or the angry God, and then we eventually made a little niceness in him, and he became our God. Uh, you can read all about the development of paleoanthropology and the view of God, you know, the big sky God and all that stuff. So here you have this two-faced God that's got anger and violence in him. Well, how does a nonviolent loving God come down and say, hmm, how do I tell these people I want to be their God? Uh, but unlike all the other gods, I don't do battle. Unlike all the other gods, I don't go to war. 
Unlike all the other gods, I don't intervene when there's earthquakes and floods. Unlike all the other gods, they've made all these deus ex machina gods. How do I reveal myself in that? And then, then it's very simple. I'm going to take my time and their time, and we're going to create a history together. And it's that history from Abraham through Jesus that is the history of this beautiful, loving, nurturing, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, life-giving, compassionate God that continues to drill home on Israel that he's not like the other gods and will fulfill his promises and does in Jesus. That They are witnesses to that, and the apostolic community are witnesses on the other side of that event. And they still have the same problem that Israel did. They've still got their theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and here's all of a sudden this Christ event that happens before their lives. That doesn't mean that they said all of a sudden, oh, we have to have new theology. No, they tried to fit Jesus into their paradigm of Second Temple, Second Temple Jewish thinking. Okay. And they made many moves that were important that will, you know, that that will affect thinking in church history down the road. But some of the moves they made weren't correct. And it took someone like the Apostle Paul or the writer of the fourth gospel or the writer of, of Luke Acts or the writer of Mark or the writer of Hebrews to really come out and show that the hermeneutic is the Son sent from the Father, through whom the Spirit is sent to us. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can acknowledge that, the Scripture then is this beautiful witness, beautiful testimony. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be loaded with errors. Errors are what make the revelation shine through. You know? Um, and unlike stupid liberals, oh, pardon me, did I do the word stupid <laughs> an adjective and a noun? Pardon me, dumb liberal. I mean that. Okay. Anyway, our dear friends on the left who go, oh, the Bible has errors. I don't, I don't study the Bible. The Bible's legend. The Bible's myth. The Bible's that. I'm thinking, you know what? You've just thrown out the greatest treasure in world history when you throw out the scriptures. And you've done exactly what the scriptures predicted you would do. You would throw out revelation. You would throw it out of your life because you don't want anything to do with a God that loves your enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a lot there. Um, for, first of all, I really like, Michael, how you pointed out that the disciples, uh, there's just a mentality that I didn't realize I had it growing up until you until you mentioned this. I had a mentality that it's like after Jesus wrote again, the disciples immediately got it. They had it. They were instantly transformed and had the message perfectly correct and went off into the world. And I like how you said that that they still had their theology. They still had their second temple Judaism theology after Jesus rose again. And they, and many of them were still trying to incorporate him into that theology. Um, that's not something I ever learned in Sunday school. Well, they're not going to teach. Well, they don't teach any of this kind of stuff in church because the church can't afford to, because <clears throat> church is all about controlling you, making money. I mean, the, the guys, the guys and gals that go into ministry anymore, most of them are just needy. And uh, they're just trying to, to meet their own needs through some kind of alleged call from the Father to serve the church. And they get in and they bust. Listen, I was that man back in the 90s, you know. Okay. 
So we we go we you know it's like I'm going to be a therapist. I'm going to help heal people. Well, you got to spend a decade in therapy before you do that, Jack. Get yourself healed, you know. Um, <laughs> no, you know we we we've got clergy that are in it for for all kinds of of reasons that that ought not they ought not to be pastors or clergy at all. You've got um, you've got uh, ladder climbers. You you know you've got uh, uh, you've got all kinds of folks in there. Here's the deal. When, as long as these people uh, have a perfect book, they can control the congregation. Because they can either claim to be the expert of the book, maybe they had a Greek class in seminary, they can claim to be more filled with the Holy Spirit, they are the anointed, and the, okay. Um, uh, and, and you might think of other ways they can do this, but they fundamentally control the book. And the interpretation of the book, so they control the people, you know. And um, so I, I just, I think it's, it's time to unshackle the Bible in the church, let it run amok. But they won't teach you that in church, right? And, and then um, I liked how you talked about also Jesus being the revelation of the Father, because one of the things that scares, uh, particularly the fundamentalist evangelical crowd, is if if you say, well, the Bible's not perfect, well they've established that this is the guardrails that you live your life by. And and so if you remove that, there's this fear that, oh, so then just sirrah, sirrah, what, you yeah. know, whatever will be, yeah. will be, and there's no guardrails, and we, we don't have any, we don't have any uh, ethics or anything. We just do whatever feels yeah. good. Yeah. And, and and but but I like that you and Jim, you did this too, where you drew it back to no, no, no. Jesus is the standard. There is an interpretation. There, There is a standard we live by, but it's revealed in the Son. The Word of God revealed to us, the Son of God. It's not in from the cover-to-cover Bible that's it. It's Jesus. And, and then it's as we see him through the Scriptures is where mm-hmm. we go, okay, that mm-hmm. is the hermeneutic. That is the path that we walk and live by. I'd like that you guys highlighted that. I think um, for, for me, I think, as I, I slowly begin to see in uh, various scriptures throughout the New Testament that Jesus came to reveal the Father. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. As, as that began to be illumined in my mind to understand, wait a minute, uh, let's think about this for a minute. If we already knew the Father, then God would not have to become flesh to reveal the Father that we already knew. Exactly. So does it, isn't an attack on faith, isn't an attack on Christianity, isn't an attack on um, the institution, uh, possibly it's an attack on that. But anyhow, to say that we have to change the way we see the Father. That Precisely. God has to look like Jesus. Exactly. That that's not a that is not an attack on the faith once delivered to the saint, you know, or something of that nature. And to to that, an idolatrist, to an idolatrist, the doctrine of the Trinity is always going to be a, a heresy or a mystery. 
Well, exactly. And but that becomes a choke choke point, if you will. Yeah. Because we we go through this great consternation. But I get it. I get that Jesus and the Father are one. I get that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I get that I came to reveal the Father. No one has seen, known the Father. No one has known God except, and, and you know, and 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 He's revealed Him, and, and I, I get that. But over here, you've got God told Him to go and kill everybody, and and God told Him to do this, and God told him to do this, and, and you know, and well, that's as it I, as becomes I a choke we have, point. We, we have to teach people that just because the Bible says God said doesn't mean God said it. Exactly, and all of a sudden as I begin to, well, God, you have to show me, because I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. I want to believe that God looks like Jesus and you know and Jesus is and was God and I want to believe that but all my life I've you know read these scriptures I know I know right. what the bible says right. you know and and all of a sudden I start coming across places in psalms and some of the prover- uh, not the proverbs some of the uh uh prophetic books I didn't ask for a sacrifice I didn't ask for an offering. I didn't ask for these things, you know. And I'm like, okay, I know you're God of gods. Let's just run this scenario for a little bit. A person back in ancient, not even Israel yet, just there in the promised land, whatever. I know you're the God of all gods, but all gods are like this. Therefore, as the God of all gods, you also must be like this. Right. That's the fatal mistake. And that's what made you the God of all gods. Because when I was a little kid, I played a game called King of the Mountain. And you don't get up to the top of the mountain unless you wrestle everybody else and throw everybody else down. So that's what made you God of all gods, is you threw all the other gods down. And the people that serve those gods. Lord, so, Lord Jesus, why it. do you have a picture of Chuck Norris on your wall? <laughs> with, with, a, with a label on the bottom, Dad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and Jesus comes in and he says, okay, love your enemies. So let's love your enemy right up until the time when dad says okay it's all over here's the line of demarcation if you're on that side of the line now sucker i get to kill you because it's all over and if you're on this side of the line well come on into my home and and let's have you know Let's have a party floating around on clouds and uh, and a barbecue on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like you only have to love your enemies for a certain amount of time. In other words, and if you put that look when you discover that God is really a cannibal, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, let's not go that far. <laughs> 
but 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 yeah so the wrestling the choke point that that i went through i know a lot of people that are trying to figure this thing out and can i say it this this way looking to jesus the author and the finisher of our faith stop trying to look to how do i fix god and just look to Jesus for a good long time, and he'll fix God. <laughs> you know, he'll take the the two faced God out of your thinking. You know, he, he's pretty good at that. Yeah, I totally agree. I I like how you were saying um, Jesus looks just like the Father, and and I was realizing, you know, what we've been taught, or at least I was taught growing up, is that Jesus looks like a part of the Father. So it's it, it what you're saying, Jim, is no, wow. no, 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 no. And, and we've been saying through several podcasts is that, no, Jesus is the exact spitting image of the Father. Perfect the reflection. Image. Not yeah. just a part of the Father. He's not just the peaceful part of the Father. <laughs> and that's basically what I was taught as well. You know, we just saw this part of him. But then at the end, you know, he's he's coming back with a vengeance. Like you said, Jim, the barbecue on the other side. And, um, and, and, and then, yeah, it's basically it, it was. It wasn't really love your enemy. It was in, endure your enemy, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just just to get to where they finally get it at the other side, you know. Or or so. better or better yet, uh, as I've heard from many people, even from the pulpit, the Lord said, "Love them." He did not say, "Like them." <laughs> and and I'm like, how do you do that? How do you love a person that you don't like? Well, there you have it, kids. <laughs> exactly. I don't like you, but I love you. <laughs> In the Lord. Right. And especially especially between the genders. You know, right. I've got to be very careful when I tell a woman that I love her, that that, you know, it's in the Lord that I love you, you know. Well, listen, you don't have to worry about that anymore because we've got at least 20 different types of genders. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw a new one today. Um, what, what oh, no. It? it was transabled. Transabled. Oh. Yep, yep. I identify with, with you know, persons that, di- that have disabilities or challenges or whatever the hell they're called. And I identify with them, and so I'm transable. Yeah, I'm transvaccinated. I identify with those that are vaccinated, even from that. <laughs> Transvax. <laughs> oh, well, man. You, well, if you got vaxxed, you're on your way out, though. Oh, I know. I got because, vaxxed you know, three times. Yeah, yeah you, you know. You you and I, Michael, you, we have the mark of the beast in us. You're, you're on the short list. <laughs> I think you do. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're going to the barbecue part of the afterlife that Jim was talking about. Excellent. <laughs> I don't know hey, if that's a demon or if that's Batman. I'll I'll put you on the spit myself, man. <laughs> he just wants some of my nice little chubby fountains. Thus ends the episode. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't know how good we uh, did on uh, <laughs> the subject of apologetics, but we're sure having fun today. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Well, we'll see what we're, where where we are next week. You know, we'll carry on with whatever it is, right? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Well, guys, this has been a, a great conversation. I'm, I've enjoyed this. Um, I'm, I'm sure the uh, the high school me would have found this very disturbing, but, <laughs> but I, I did enjoy it because, I mean, I can't tell you guys what a fan of the Josh McDowell books I was. Um, you know, and they were a part of my journey, so I don't I don't bash them in a sense or anything, but but it it it, it um it definitely was a part of my walk with him. But now looking back, it's funny how it's like I think we covered pretty well the issue of do we need apologetics because we <laughs> let's give the Sunday school answer no we need Jesus <laughs> Jim where can people find your uh, find your book on uh, Amazon uh, or anywhere where you buy your online books it's uh, it's uh, available all right and michael where can people find your books and you have some videos too yeah i've got two youtube channels michael harden and preaching peace and they can find my books uh, on amazon all right good stuff you guys and everybody thanks for listening and we will be with you again next week excellent